our guest this evening is Dan Huber from the University of Tampa. Evening, everybody. Evening, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. A little bit tipsy already, I suspect, from half a beer. It's terrible. So on this very jolly St. Patrick's Day, we are going to talk sharks. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been chasing sharks around pretty much since I was about eight years old. Clearly, this is a career path you've had for a very long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into it? Yeah, when I was a kid, about eight years old, a cousin of mine was attacked by a shark off the east coast of Florida. And, uh, I, mean, I grew up in New York on Long Island and uh, like on the south shore of Long Island. Always around the beach, always around the water. And then this sort of like distant relative that lived down in Florida got attacked by a shark. And my whole family freaked out. Nobody would go back in the water. Mind you, I mean, you're pretty hard-pressed to actually come across a shark on Long Island. Uh, but everybody freaked out. Nobody would go in the water. And it just it flipped a switch in my head. And they, they couldn't keep me out of the water. And That's I've been insane. chasing sharks around ever since. So where did you do your studies? I did my, my bachelor's degree at Duke University. And then I came down to Tampa to do my doctorate at the University of South Florida, uh, which I finished up in 2006. And shortly after that, I started working at the University of Tampa, which I've now been at for, this is my 10th year there. Okay. So when we looked up your website, it says that you work on the biomechanics and the feeding of these animals. Is that right? Yeah, basically the mechanically how the business end of a shark works. Mm-hmm. And so what does that entail? It's um, a combination of working on muscles and working on skeletons. So um, if you think about how organisms generate force that they then put out into the environment, you've got muscle contractions that pull on skeletal elements, and then the skeletal elements then kind of like relay that force to something in the environment, like a prey item, for example. So we do a little bit of muscle physiology work to understand the forces generated by the muscles, but most of what I do is um, is the mechanics of the skeleton. Because sharks have, so if you think of the, the cartilaginous fish in general, so sharks, stingrays, all of their relatives, they are roughly 1,200 species out of about the 53 or so thousand species of vertebrates. So the vast majority of vertebrates have a bony skeleton, when bone is rigid, so it makes sense that when muscles pull on it, bones move and then your body moves. Uh, but cartilage is really, really flexible. And so there's these the sharks, the stingrays, their relatives have a skeleton that basically bends when you push on it. So mechanically, it's a pretty odd system to work on. And um, so I basically look at how the skeleton is designed, how skeletons have evolved, and how they are adapted to meet different sort of like ecological demands. Um, one of the things that I've worked mostly on is sharks and stingrays that crush up hard food. So for example, cow nose rays, uh, they crush up clams. There are things called horn sharks, which eat sea urchins. And so in each of these cases, you've got an animal that is actually crushing a prey item that is harder than its own skeleton. So wow. mechanically, it's like, imagine trying to crack a walnut between your teeth if your jaw was made out of rubber. So it's, <laughs> yeah, like mechanically, it's an odd system. Yeah. And so I basically study how they've evolved to, to get away with doing pretty amazing things with a pretty soft skeleton. Why this particular field? Because um, I'm thinking that sharks are so kind of at the forefront of people's minds, but for, for peculiar reasons like, I hate to say it, but things like Sharknado, which portray them in a really bizarre light. Yeah, somebody's got to give the cast of Beverly Hills 90210 a job these days. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that, because if we look at what most people think of as it relates to sharks, uh, it's very, they're very, very dangerous. There's an imminent danger to people when it comes to sharks, which couldn't really be further from the truth. I mean, 75% of sharks are a meter or smaller. 
uh, and would never have the opportunity to come in contact with any human. It just so happens that there are certain places in the world where there are large, large sharks that live in coastal habitats that have a higher probability of interacting with people. And those particular instances kind of like strike fear into everybody's hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also largely due to Hollywood. I mean, let's be honest. Peter Benchley wrote a hell of a book, and uh, and I'm drawing a blank on his name. Whoever directed Jaws um, did an amazing job. Yes, this is true. Who did direct Jaws? Um, I wanted to yeah, say Spielberg. Spielberg. Right. I was like, am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, that's, that's clearly set the mindset for many, many generations to come, that particular film. And set sharks back for generations to come because there was essentially a shark slaughter around the United States after Jaws came out. Oh, wow. Because it was this, again, it it established that, wrongly established that sharks were an imminent threat to people's safety. So everybody with a fishing pole and, unfortunately, a shotgun would go out and go shark hunting. Uh, Yeah, and it just, I mean, that's in part why shark populations around the world are in big, big trouble. If we look at, so people in the United States don't eat shark all that often, but around Mm -hmm. the world, lots of people eat shark. Uh, And so if you look at the the commercially important species, about 75% of them are in danger of what's called commercial extinction, which basically means that it's not that they're going to go extinct immediately. It means that there's so few of them out there that it's not economically viable to go look for them to catch, Um, which it's a pretty significant issue. So you get this weird interaction of overfishing and life history, which is kind of like the the summation of all of the reproductive characteristics of an organism. Mm-hmm. Um, sharks, as it turns out, have reproductively have a lot in common with mammals, uh, particularly with humans. I mean, if you look at the sort of like reproductive maturation of a white shark, it's pretty much the same as one of us. They become mature in their kind of like early teenage years. They reproduce. At absolute maximum, they'll have one to two offspring per year. Um, so basically, they become mature late in life. They have relatively few offspring, and the, the gestation period is very, very long, which basically adds up to low reproductive output. And so all of those organisms around the world that have this relatively low reproductive output, they're the ones that tend to be in some sort of kind of like imperiled conservation status. Basically, we can catch them much, much quicker than they can replenish the stocks through natural reproduction. And so I know that, um, looking at your website, that part of the reason that you do this is to try and uh, deter people from keeping them in aquariums, for example. I wouldn't say it's the, that it's to deter people from keeping mm-hmm. them in aquariums. It's That aspect of my research has been to sort of develop best practices for keeping them healthy in aquariums. Um, the fact of the matter is that zoos and aquariums are largely conservation-based, and part of their mission, part of, like, the, the animals that are in zoos and aquariums are sort of ambassadors for all of the related animals out in the wild. They're a mechanism for educating people about the value in conserving biodiversity, and I think that sharks in aquaria are particularly important in that regard. It helps to dispel the myth. I mean, if you can actually go and see this animal, and it's not some, like, bloodthirsty maniac in the aquarium tank... It dispels some of these myths, and that's it kind of opens the door to educating people about the beauty of these animals. So what we've done is um, this particular study was about sand tiger sharks, which are, despite the fact that certain populations around the world are actually critically endangered, there are basically special permits are authorized to be able to collect some to put them into aquarium exhibits. The history of it is that 
they look very dangerous, but they're actually really well behaved. So they are pretty ideal from, at least thought to be pretty ideal from a, an, a captive husbandry perspective. Mm-hmm. But what we came to find out is that about a third of them around the country that were put into captivity developed varying degrees of spinal deformities. And so we basically tried to hit every event in the chain of custody to try and understand what causes these spinal deformities. So the way that they're captured and transported. Once they're in captivity, their nutritional physiology, their captive behavior, aquarium design, and ultimately how that affects the mechanical properties of the vertebrae, um, which it's, it was kind of like an all-of-the-above type of thing. We found that the method that they're caught with, essentially like the fishing gear that they're caught on, will mm-hmm. affect their probability of developing these spinal deformities. Um, we even found out stuff like, I mean, this was the sort of like off-the-record part of it, but there were certain collectors that would catch these animals, and they would stick a five-foot shark nose down in a 55-gallon drum. Oh, wow. Bouncing up and down on the deck of a boat as they race to shore. And they, they, these animals, not only are they designed for their bodies to be fully supported by water, but unlike most vertebrates, I mean, that's really important for their bodies to be supported by the buoyant force of water mm-hmm. because they're made out of cartilage, and cartilage bends when you push on it. Yep. It's a combination of the way that they're captured and transported. Once they're in captivity, uh, nutritional physiology plays into it considerably. We found uh, really major deficiencies in vitamin C and zinc. And if if you don't have enough vitamin C, your collagen doesn't form correctly. Mm -hmm. And all all vertebrate skeletal elements form from a, a template made out of collagen. If you don't have enough zinc, then the enzymes that mineralize your skeleton by attaching calcium to your collagen... Those enzymes don't work correctly, so your skeleton is poorly mineralized. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have adequate vitamin C and zinc, it means that your skeletal template is flawed, and then your ability to connect mineral to that template is also flawed. And so essentially what it amounts to is sort of like shark scurvy. Right. When you think about scurvy, you think about people with bowed legs. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason that the legs are bowed is because you have this, this biochemical and mechanical deficiency in the skeleton... And the load-bearing parts of the skeleton are where that sort of manifests. So the legs bear the brunt of your body weight, so the legs are what get bowed out. What we've essentially seen is that in a shark, the spine, which bears the brunt of the, the forces of locomotion, that's what ends up getting deformed by virtue of these nutritional deficiencies. And the extent to which they get deformed is interestingly... So we have this sort of interaction between like natural physiological mechanisms in these organisms and then also the, the exhibits that have been designed to hold them. So there's a significant correlation between the prevalence of these spinal deformities and the length of the tanks in which they exist. So I'll ask you a question. What, when you go to the aquarium and you see fish in an aquarium tank, mm-hmm. what are they doing all the time? Usually swimming. Swimming. How are they swimming? Uh, in a straight line? Yeah, well, I guess they're moving through the water, right? So not completely straight line, but... Well, yeah, not in a completely straight line, but basically they're circling the tank. They're pretty much always just circling the tank. Yeah. And we we got video from, I don't know, it was something like 20 aquaria around the country and saw that not only are they circling in the tank, but they're always circling in the same direction. They're pretty much uh-huh. always going clockwise or yep. always going counterclockwise. And if you think about what that does to the skeleton, for an animal who, if you imagine a shark's spine, is essentially like a stack of hockey pucks that flexes back and forth. If they're always turning to one side, that means one side of the spine is always being compressed, and the other side of the spine is always in tension. So if you were caught and transported in a way that sort of like has this very kind of like jarring forces applied to your spine, that sort of sets the stage for this problem. Then if you've got 
deficiencies in key components that support skeletal development and maintenance, okay, you add kind of like the next layer to this problem. And then you put them into a system where there's this asymmetric loading on their spine. What that all ultimately adds up to is that the compressive side of the spine starts to crack and crumble, and eventually the vertebrae that are crumbling get fired out, the tensile side of the spine, to the point at which there is basically a, a kink in the spine. They break their own backs by virtue of this whole situation. And once they break their backs, I mean, these animals have to swim in order to breathe. So there's no, like, they're not sitting it out. You're not kind of like going on the sidelines and resting up to heal this broken skeleton. They have to continue to swim through it, and it's a pretty quick decline following that. So this essentially always ends in the animals being euthanized. It's the only humane thing to do oh, wow. after they've broken their own backs. Um, we basically identified all these different factors, identified the manner, like the mechanical properties of the spine of the vertebrae um, that are flawed by virtue of these other factors, and then created a whole series of recommendations for the aquarium industry, essentially like to establish best practices. Wow. We have this kind of very idealized view of what we see in aquaria, and we think, okay, well... They seem to be okay, they seem to be happy. They, I guess, well, we certainly know the one in um, Tampa, they're very well looked after. Um, That's, so th this project was a collaboration with the Florida Aquarium mm -hmm. in Tampa. And um, if, you, if anybody happens to go to the Florida Aquarium in Tampa and you see the main shark exhibit, you will see what is essentially a rec one of our recommendations for the design of a good shark exhibit. It is not just a circular tank where the animals are going around and around and around. It's a spatially complex tank where they have to constantly be turning. They're, the, design, the design of the exhibit basically causes them to have to vary their swimming behavior, which evens out the way that the spine is going to be loaded. Instead yeah. of having this like just a compressive side and a tensile side, mm -hmm. the compression and the tension are constantly alternating back and forth. Yeah, that's very cool. It's nice that we have something like that in Tampa. Yeah, the um, Florida Aquarium is, I mean, for a, a relatively small aquarium, it is an awesome place. Yeah. Your work in sharks is driven by intellectual curiosity, but have you found anything directly applicable to humans through your work? Because the, the stuff that you're talking about is obviously beneficial to the welfare of the animals. Yeah, so I mean, a bit of what we found uh, regarding the relationship between physiology and, and skeletal maintenance I mean, honestly, that, that stuff that's, had already been worked out for people, so um, I can't say so much that that is directly applicable. I think the, the real tie-in, so some of the more recent work that we're doing, which could potentially have kind of like material benefit for people, is in under, better understanding the shark skeleton and using that as the basis for designing new types of materials for different engineering applications. So if you think about, like, a shark skeleton, yeah, sharks are cartilaginous fish, but it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, yeah, certain parts of their skeleton are just the soft, flexible cartilage that we have in the tip of our nose or in our ears. Other parts of the skeleton are actually pretty well mineralized, so mm -hmm. the vertebrae have mineral in them. Um, basically, like, I mean, the vertebrae wouldn't work if they were just made out of cartilage. They would just squish, and yeah. they wouldn't be able to withstand the forces of locomotion. Uh, shark jaws are also pretty heavily mineralized. Granted, they're not bone. I mean, it's considered mineralized cartilage, but there's mineral nonetheless. And you can envision a shark's jaw sort of like an orange. If you imagine the peel on the outside of the orange is a layer of these little mineralized, almost like little bathroom tiles that form mm -hmm. this sort of like this cortex or this outer rind on the outside of the jaws. And then the inside of the orange, the soft, squishy fruit, is the same stuff that we have in our nose or in the tip of our ears. And this design actually appears to be a pretty remarkable way of kind of like maximizing mechanical properties while reducing 
cost and materials that go into producing these things. So this kind of like this mat of bathroom tiles are these little blocks of mineral that coat the outside of the jaw, and they they have all these joints between them. So the whole thing is sort of flexible. But when it's under compression, all of those joints sort of like jam up against each other, so it actually dramatically increases the stiffness. And the inside, like mechanically, the inside of the jaw is... Honestly, it's sort of irrelevant. You could fill it. I mean, physiologically, it's important, but mechanically, when it comes to consume, like capturing and consuming prey, it's not all that important. So you basically have this, like mechanically, you have a way of taking a very, very small quantity of stiff material and putting it in just the right spot to do what it needs to do. Okay. So we have a related question from our friend Kim Luddy who tweeted, what is the benefit of having sharp teeth and a weak bite over the inverse? The benefit of having sharp teeth and a weak bite over having dull teeth and a strong bite. Yeah. Okay. So it turns out, if we look at pound for pound, sharks actually don't bite that hard in general. If we look at it, again, on a pound for pound basis. And in large part, the reason for that is because they have such sharp teeth. So it turns out, like, bite pressure can trump bite force if you're eating relatively soft prey. If, you, if you're eating soft, squishy things, it doesn't take a lot of force to get the teeth to sink into them. So by and large, for the typical shark with its piscivorous diet, its consumption of other fish, you can get away with that. You don't need to bite that hard because you essentially have a steak knife for a mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, sharks have like one of the the sort of unique defining characteristics of sharks or cartilaginous fishes in general is the fact that they have very rapid tooth replacement. A shark will go through, I mean, tens of thousands of teeth in its life. Because oh, wow. Essentially, like, if, you, if you were to look at the inside of a shark jaw, so if you just look at a shark's mouth, you see all these big sharp mm-hmm. teeth. If yep. you were to look at the inside of the jaw, you see probably six to eight rows of teeth, and each row is essentially like a conveyor belt where as soon as one tooth falls out, the next tooth is essentially ready to pop into place. So not only do they have a mouth that is a steak knife, they have sort of like a self-sharpening steak knife in their (laughs) mouth, which is a pretty cool trick to have. But if you flip to the opposite side of it, which is having dull teeth and a high bite force, that's actually something that is sort of unique to the the cartilaginous fishes, the sharks and and rays uh, that eat relatively hard prey. So you got to look at this sort of like balancing the equation between the properties of what you're eating and the properties of your own skeletal materials. So if you had these really sharp teeth and you went to eat something hard, your teeth are going to break because mm-hmm. the stress in the teeth is not going to exceed the stress that's happening in the prey item. So if you're going to eat something hard, it's kind of like there's a whole bunch of convergent evolution, lots of different species independently evolving relatively flat teeth which is a way of essentially like reducing the stress that acts in the teeth so that you can eat relatively hard things and that's actually a pretty cool thing to be able to do in the wild if or in general if you can find a unique ecological niche if you can find a way to do something that nobody else can do Mm -hmm. what that ultimately does is it frees you from competition yeah and competition is one of the biggest energy expenses of any animal or any organism anywhere in the world if it's competing for resources with other similarly adapted organisms 
a ton of energy is going to go simply into the act of competition and not even into the act of consuming whatever the relevant resource is. The best example that we have around here is the cow nose ray. If you look in at a, a cow nose ray's mouth, it's basically like a pavement. It's just it's all of these flat tooth plates that are all fused together into this sort of continuous pavement. And they use that to crush up really hard things like clams and all kinds of uh, sort of like bivalves that are found in the benthic habitat. Another question from Kim, and I wonder if this is on the premise that, as you said, sharks have to keep moving in order to be able to breathe. Most. This Most, okay. But her question was actually, do, you, do they have to deal with lactic acid buildup? And if so, what's sure. their strategy? Interesting. Um, yeah, so sharks absolutely have to deal with lactic acid buildup. But in terms of their, their muscle performance, it's in the same manner that we have to deal with lactic acid buildup. Let, let's take it from the perspective of a shark that does need to swim in order to breathe. It's, it's called ram ventilation. Basically, the forward mm-hmm. movement of the body creates a flow of water across the gills, and that's how they get their oxygen. In those animals, those, those are the ones that tend to be the sort of like the open ocean, continuously cruising predators. And they swim along at a relatively low speed, and on the side of their body they have red, basically aerobic performing muscle that powers that relatively low force, low speed muscle contraction that will move the body forward. But now this shark spies some prey item off in the distance. Let's say it's the mako that sees the tuna. Now you need to switch gears. The mako needs to go from casually swimming, just a kind of a low velocity undulation of the tail, to boom, sprint performance. So you've gone from basically the cheetah that's just wandering through the field to the cheetah that is now sprinting across the field to catch the gazelle. And in order to do that, this switching of gears actually involves a switching of muscle types. They switch from the red muscle that is aerobic and generates low force but can do it without any fatigue to using white muscle, which generates a tremendous amount of force but does it with anaerobic metabolism, so it does generate lactic acid. So they are able to do this for short periods of time, and then they have the opportunity to metabolize the lactic acid. Uh, but there's actually there's an interesting tie-in of that to, again, back to the idea of, what, of how people catch sharks. And even when we're catching sharks for scientific purposes, just to understand how many of them are out there. Sharks that are caught on lines, like, for example, commercial long lines, once they're caught, once they get hooked, they boom, they hit that sprint mode, and they keep swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and pulling against the line. And so that excessive sprinting using this anaerobic metabolism of the the white muscle tissue Mm -hmm. causes a tremendous amount of lactic acid buildup. And lactic acidosis is actually one of the things that will kill sharks that are on a line. It becomes so extreme that it's toxic to them? Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. So there's a a question about the black tip shark challenge on the east coast of Florida. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, in general, it's absolutely going to be harmful to the animals because uh, even if the intent is catch and release, there's a, a fair number of sharks that simply by virtue of struggling on the line will die. If we look at a historical perspective on shark fishing tournaments, in the past, I mean, if we're talking about the kind of era following the movie Jaws, it was basically catch and kill. I mean, that was the objective, was to kill these animals before they kill you, which was a completely illogical perception. Nowadays, things have moved to catch and release, and even more recently, they've moved to not just catch and release, but catch and release with people from marine research institutions so that they're caught, they're tagged, and they're then released. 
But the fact of the matter is that depending upon how long it takes to bring them in on the line, that can cause this, essentially this lactic acidosis, which even if they are released alive, they may not survive. This is one of the things that people that do these sort of like fisheries assessments of sharks, one of the things that they do is they catch the animals and then they actually score the, the condition that the animals are in when they're released. If the release condition is relatively high, like if the animal is very responsive, very active, you pretty much, I mean, they'll, they'll be fine once they're released. But if you release it and it has a, like a release score that is relatively low, if they're sort of like lethargic coming off the line, there's actually a pretty good chance that even though you released it alive, it's not going to make it. I mean, if you, so think of it this way. If you need to stimulate it to get the tail moving again, that would be considered a, like a poor release condition. And then, yeah, there's a reasonable chance that that animal is not going to make it. I mean, whether or not it, it sort of just goes kaput and it sort of like coasts to the bottom of the ocean and dies, maybe. But think about ultimately like how that release condition is going to bear on its ability to eat and not get eaten. So if it's relatively unresponsive, there's a chance that perhaps some other big shark is going to come take it down. And we've actually, like, you actually see that a lot when you do offshore shark fishing, that there will be relatively large sharks that have massive chunks taken out of them by even bigger sharks. That's a scary prospect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we once pulled up what was probably about a 10-foot great hammerhead that had... If you imagine from, say, like the gills on the right side of the body to the gills on the left side of the body, probably about two feet across, there was about a foot and a half of that region of the body missing. <gasps> yeah, so think about the size of the shark that it takes to, yeah. to take that much out of a 10-foot hammer. Oh, grief. So we have another question from Mike, which is? So the question is about basically the, the design of shark skin. What is beneficial about shark skin? And it actually is scales. Um, the, the shark scales are called dermal denticles, which basically means skin teeth. The background of that is that actually teeth that are in the mouths of all vertebrates evolved from scales. If you imagine the, the outside of the body was covered in scales. Some of those scales grew over, basically over the edge of the mouth and actually became teeth. So that's the evolutionary history of teeth. Um, but the, weird. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but the scales themselves are basically a, a mechanism for drag reduction. There's a cool example to illustrate that. So I'm going to go completely off the rails and then bring it back on the rails. When golf was invented, the game of golf was created with a smooth surface golf ball. And then after a while, the people who created the game of golf noticed that the old beat-up balls, the ones that they had beaten the crap out of, went further than the new smooth balls. What that was was sort of the first insight into what's known as micro-turbulence. So if you create all of these sort of like pockets, these little dimples on the surface of an object, it creates all of these sort of like micro vortices that stabilizes flow around the ball. And so that's why now all golf balls in modern times have all these little dimples on. It turns out that shark skin does the exact same thing. All of these, if you look at them in like a microscopic view, they're actually pretty complex structures that have these little sort of like almost these little fins that are on the top of them and these little grooves between the fins and then grooves between adjacent scales, which basically are mechanically or kind of hydrodynamically the same thing as the dimples on a golf ball. And what the design of these scales do is it creates these little micro vortices that stabilizes fluid flow over the surface of the body, which reduces drag. Turns out there's, um, there's some research. Actually, my, my PhD mentor from the University of South Florida, a guy named Phil Moda, has done some work on this recently in collaboration with some engineers. And they've worked out the, the finer details of how these mechanisms work. And now there's actually people who are looking at how to use shark scales on all different types of 
devices for drag reduction. There's a, a group at, I want to say, the University of maybe Southern Alabama, which is actually looking at using shark scales on helicopter blades as a way of reducing drag on the blades as they're rotating on the top of the helicopter. So it's a pretty cool mechanism. So I guess when we were talking about uh, it not having a direct impact for humans, it has done in terms of technology. Oh, sure. And what I was saying before was more so related to my particular yeah, research. At large, if yeah. we look at lessons learned from sharks, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's lots of cool stuff that can kind of filter its way into human-related things. So presumably there's um, a very sensible reason for why they've evolved this cartilaginous spinal structure. So David wanted to know, what's the advantage of having that? Okay, so if we imagine about 430 million years ago, there was this branch point in evolutionary history. And so we came, so vertebrates initially had a skeleton made out of bone. And you get to this point about 430 million years ago, where there's a split between two major groups of vertebrates. And the characteristic that defined that split was the presence or absence of what's called a swim bladder. And anybody who's seen a fish anywhere... I mean, has been able to recognize that it can basically just hover. It can maintain a steady position in the water column by virtue of what is essentially a balloon in its abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. They have the swim bladder. They can control gases that move in and out of the swim bladder, and by virtue of that, they control their buoyancy. So it's the same thing as a BCD for anybody that's ever gone scuba diving. That vest that you wear controls, helps you to control your buoyancy. Well, what was the common ancestor of all of the cartilaginous fishes had some mutation that basically did away with the swim bladder, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. You do away with the swim bladder, and all of a sudden you're negatively buoyant. So if you have no swim bladder and you have a skeleton made out of this very, very dense material that we know is bone, all of a sudden you sink like a stone to mm-hmm. the bottom of the ocean, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, it, it, that's kind <laughs> of a bad thing if you're just constantly sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Yep. So it turns out that the modern-day cartilaginous fishes have basically two major solutions to that negative buoyancy problem. One of them is that they have a massive liver. A shark's liver can be up to 30% of its body weight. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, relative to the size of our livers, I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, relative to the size of the liver in any other vertebrate, shark livers are gigantic. So basically, they drink us all under the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've tried to give them beer. It doesn't work so well. Uh, no, okay. So this giant liver is full of... One of the things that our livers contain is a lot of lipids, and shark livers contain a tremendous amount of lipid, think lipid is oil oil floats on top of water mm-hmm. so having this this organ which is kind of like saturated with all of these low density lipids helps with the negative buoyancy problem the other solution to this negative buoyancy problem was doing away with bone doing away with this very very heavy dense skeletal element and switching over to a lighter skeletal element which is cartilage so we haven't actually talked about the typical myths that people believe about sharks so what are your favorites that sharks can detect one part of blood per billion parts of water, Um, that sharks have some preference for human meat. Uh, What else is there? There, What are the other myths? That there's the notion of a rogue shark, like a single shark that will decide that it's just going to go on a killing spree. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the other one? The megalodon? Is that what it was called? Like this... Sharknado. Well, Sharknado was a shark in a tornado, right? I can't many, even bring many sharks myself in a tornado. To, I see. Yeah. There's multiple sharks, um, right? Well, no, Megalodon. So, I mean, sort of the myth is that Megalodon is still around, but Megalodon was very much a real shark. So if we look at um, 
see if I get my numbers right. It's estimated that Megalodon went extinct, I want to say, two to three million years ago. I'm pretty sure that's right. In this particular lineage of sharks, there was this period of just increasing and increasing and increasing in size. So Megalodon is essentially like a distant cousin of the white shark, mm-hmm. but about two and a half times the length. So the, the, the largest white shark that's ever been caught... It's about 21 and a half feet. It was caught in Cuba in the early 40s. Um, which, interestingly, if you think, like, people think about Jaws. You see the movie Jaws and you think, like, oh, this is ridiculous. They made this giant mechanical beast. It actually wasn't that far off. The, the shark, the mechanical shark that they used was 25 feet, uh-huh. which was only three and a half feet longer than the largest white shark that's right. ever been caught. Um, so, despite being science fiction, there was actually a few bits of the science that they got right in the movie. But Megalodon is estimated to have been up to, I don't know, I mean, it's difficult to extrapolate exact size from the fossil record, mm-hmm. but at least 50 feet, somewhere between 50 and 60 feet. So you basically have like two and a half to three times the size of the biggest white shark that's around today. And this was, Megalodon was the biggest of this lineage of, so Megalodon, mega tooth sharks. Mm-hmm. And it was the dominant predator of the oceans for a pretty long period of time. I mean, for easily, like, 20 million years, it was one of the largest predators, probably the largest predator that was out there, and uh, probably the largest predator that has existed in the history of Earth. So it's the idea of whether it's still around or not that's in question. Right. I mean, there's the occasional drunken fisherman that claims to have seen (laughs) Megalodon out in the open ocean, Uh, but there's, there's zero evidence to support that. Okay. There's a couple of theories that, about what led to the extinction of Megalodon. Um, one of them is actually sea level change. So there's a lot of sharks that use coastal areas as their nursery grounds. Uh, that's actually the reason why bull sharks are so problematic for people, because bull sharks swim up into uh, freshwater rivers in order to give birth, because the pups then have, like bull shark pups will spend the first couple of years of life living in the river where they're essentially the apex predator. They've got lots of food and they're protected from other large predators. Then they'll move out into the estuary along the coast for the next couple of years and it's not until they're like five or six years old that they'll go out into the open ocean to join the rest of the population. So there's evidence from Central and South America um, to support that Megalodon used these kind of like coastal estuaries as their nursery grounds. And um, basically as sea level dropped the estuaries disappeared because the the sea level went from being kind of like on this this continental margin to being down at the shelf which just drops down basically into the abyss so loss of coastal habitat is one of the ideas behind the extinction of megalodon um another idea is and this is actually something that there's there's evidence of being the fate of large predators throughout evolutionary Mm -hmm. history is that if, if you are big, you can pretty much chomp through anything you want until all of your prey gets smaller and faster and you can't actually catch it. So that's, that's another idea behind it. There's also large-scale climate change ideas behind it about how changes in ocean temperature would have affected um, kind of like the, the availability of prey. So essentially a lot of things went north or south kind of like to the to the higher latitudes and there there wasn't as much of a prey base left over for megalodon which by all evidence that we have from the fossil record was a relatively kind of tropical to subtropical like fairly warm water animal so just out of curiosity how many different kinds of shark can you find off obviously the west coast of florida off the west coast of florida so in the immediate coastal area i don't know maybe a dozen yeah so um 
You've got two species of hammerheads, the bonnet, so you actually have the largest and the smallest of the hammerhead species, the great hammerhead and then the bonnethead. You've got black tip sharks, you've got spinner sharks, uh, sandbar sharks, you've got Atlantic sharp nose, you've got, uh, what else? There's, there's a probably no more than about 10 or 12 shark species that are in the immediate coastal area, but when you get out into deeper water, you start to find a lot of other types of species. You'll find mako sharks, you'll have different types of what are known as cat sharks, you'll have six-gill sharks, which actually, six-gill sharks are, the term living fossil sort of comes to uh-huh. mind. This is from a lineage that's been around for the better part of 200 million years. Wow. And they're huge. They get up to 16 feet long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are massive. And they, um, they basically spend their time at great depth scavenging on carcasses that fall to the bottom of the ocean. Do you have a pet favorite? My favorite shark, hands down, is the horn shark, uh-huh. uh, which is a West Coast species. It's, um, it lives from about sort of like San Francisco down into uh, the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. And it's the species that I mentioned without giving its name earlier, the one that eats the, uh, the sea urchins. Okay. So from a mechanical perspective, very curious, so again, about how these animals eat things that are harder than their own skeletons. But it also happens to be the species that I did the most work with during my Ph.D., uh, and actually lived with for a period of time. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you find yourself you doing all kinds... You lived with. When you're working on a PhD, it's amazing that you have the opportunity to go do these things that you will at no other point in your life have the opportunity to do, such as live with groups of sharks. And so I, I lived um, in a variety of different marine labs uh, during, during the course of my PhD and would basically... I mean, I have sharks in captivity that I would then... Yeah, that's the guy. Awesome. <laughs> uh, that I would... You're sleeping at the marine lab in the room next to the tank that has all the sharks. And oh, so wow. I, I had the opportunity to spend like, a lot of time with these animals. And what made them so sort of like near and dear to my heart, it was a really valuable experience in understanding animal behavior. We have all of these kind of like sophisticated behavioral attributes that we attribute to organisms that are like us. I mean, other humans, other primates, other mammals. And it's easy to think about how these closely related organisms would do things that are similar to us. And you don't really think about sharks as having much in the way of personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I came to find out that that's actually pretty far from the truth. You could have painted all of these animals the same color, and based upon little behavioral quirks, I would have been able to tell you exactly who was who. Wow. Yeah, and it was was to the point where when I would come into the, into the, the facility that they were in and I would turn on the lights... They would start circling the top of the tank because they wanted physical interaction. I would pet them. <laughs> and if I didn't pet them, they would spit water at me. <laughs> Which was... Talk about was, needy. Yeah, no, seriously, yeah. But it was just... The time that I spent with these animals, was it was very eye-opening in terms of the complexity and the sophistication of mm-hmm. sharks in general. I think we could probably keep you here all night asking questions about sharks. I don't know why it is that there's such a fascinating animal but clearly they've captured the imagination of a lot of people um so thank you so much for coming out to speak to us this evening thank you so much for having me it's been a lot of fun yeah likewise it's no
we're out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, which is just absolutely incredible, especially at night, because there's there's no silence like being in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night. It's absolutely amazing, complete darkness. And so we're pulling these long lines in about 3,000 feet of water, and the long line is like a quarter-inch steel cable, and the long line gets hung up on some structure in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. So we're pulling and pulling and pulling. And if any of you have seen Jaws, you remember that scene where they basically they shoot those barrels into Jaws, and it's like, oh, I'll never go down with one barrel. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, within 20 minutes, Jaws has gone down with four barrels. And not only that, but then they hook into the shark, and the shark is swimming in one direction, the boat is trying to go in the other direction, but all of a sudden the back of the boat is just dipping and dipping and dipping further and further into the water because Jaws is stronger than the boat. Yep. That's essentially what was happening. We were on an about a 100-foot research vessel, and the long line gets caught up on something in the bottom of the ocean, and the back of the boat is just going down and down and down and down and down until all of a sudden this quarter-inch steel cable pops and comes whipping up from the depths and just comes flying onto the deck of the boat. And it whizzed right past my head to the point where like, I had a graze mark on the side of my Ooh. neck. Had I been <laughs> a foot over, it would have cut my head off. Yeah. 